Please be seated. We transition now to the time of fellowship where we are going to commune with the Lord over his word and table. And he leads us into this time, again using Psalm 86, this time verse 11. It says, Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I don't know if you've ever been at lunch or dinner with someone who's got their phone on the table and they're constantly looking at their phone or they're distracted and you're trying to have a meal with them and they're clearly not united on the purpose for which you are there in fellowship, that their minds are divided. So if I can encourage you now, unite your minds, unite your hearts to fear God's name, to pay attention to the words that are about to be proclaimed to you, that you might fear him and walk in his ways. Brother? Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Haggai, chapter 2, as well, turn in your bulletins to the insert, use that to follow along, take notes, read the, the quotes, and hopefully the objective here is for you to leave here learning this passage. It's two different schools of thought today in preaching. One is uh, the purpose of preaching is to give God's people some kind of a message, some, some inspiring words to live and, and serve, and that is not the biblical standard of, of what constitutes preaching. Paul told Timothy, until I come, give instruction to the, to the reading and, and teaching and, and exhorting of Scripture, and that's, that's biblical uh, preaching. The second thought is, is just be faithful to the text. Explain what this text is and let God's, God's Spirit work bind with it to feed God's people, and that is what we're after today. That's why you've got the notes that you've got. The goal is for you to not leave here inspired, but to leave here understanding God's Word better, that we together might feast upon it and grow in our walks. That being said, Haggai chapter 2 is the text that we are currently on, 1 through 9. Haggai has four oracles that were given to this older gentleman um, in 520 B.C. to give to the people of God 18, 16 years after they got into the promised land with the commission on the part of God through Cyrus to rebuild the temple. They failed. They didn't do it. And so Haggai came in 520 and gave four different oracles of God, from God to God's people um, to serve as an encouragement um, for them to uh, carry on with the work of God's kingdom. So Haggai 2 is the third, and uh, 2, 1 through 9. We're going to look at, uh, look at this. This is God's word, so let me invite you together with me to stand as we read God's word. Hear now the word of King Jesus. On the 21st... Of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shatael, governor of Judah, to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage, Joshua, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, 
the sea also and the dry land. And I will shake all the uh, nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. That's Father, reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege and a delight it is to gather together and around your word. And during this time of communion, as we each corporately participate in your word, supping upon it, eating it by your spirit. Lord, bless this meal to our spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. And Lord, I pray, therefore, that you grant me the grace as a foolish sinner to be faithful to this text and, to, Lord, to speak it and nothing more and nothing less. Lord, as, you, as your call for the prophet, the, the, the true prophet, was simply to speak your word in truth. God, grant me, grant us the grace to be nourished upon that this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you haven't discovered it by now, you will. Just a matter of time. And that is, brothers and sisters, some of the greatest setbacks in your walk typically follow upon spiritual renewal, spiritual revival. We see it in um, Elijah, who, um, after God's people had suffered for three years under a drought because they had given themselves to the Baals, they were worshiping Baal. He came and, pro- and proposed a competition to King Ahab of the northern kingdom Israel. And this is what he said, 1 Kings 18. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood. But put no fire under it, and I will prepare the others. He's speaking about the prophets of Baal. I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the, on the wood, and I will not put a, put a fire under it. Then you will call on the name of your God. I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered and said, that's a good idea. And it was a good idea, because guys, get this. Elijah is serving to Baal's strength, to, to the Canaanite god of thunder. The god of thunder, the god of, of, of lightning, the god of weather was Baal. Same thing as Thor, by the way. And so if there was any way, if there was any god that could light a sacrifice on fire with lightning from, a lightning bolt from heaven, it would be Baal. So the people said, that's a great idea. In fact, yes, they're worshiping Baal. And you're saying God, Yahweh's the only God. Who is it? So you know the story, I hope. And that is that the Baalists, the 450 prophets of Baal, spent the next day, the whole day, seeking to appease their God by, by, by moaning and praying and, and pleading and, and bargaining and cutting them their, their, their flesh, trying to move Baal to light the sacrifice. And, of course, he didn't. All the while, Elijah, if you've read this text, um, is mocking them, saying, what, has Baal gone uh, to the privy? Has he gone uh, to the bathroom? Is he uh, detained? Is he sleeping? Is your God uh, sleeping? Wake him up. I mean, he's going on and on and on. And after eight, nine hours, after a long day, Elijah uttered a very simple prayer. 
Actually, before that, Elijah uh, commanded people to take buckets of water and pour it on the sacrifice, his sacrifice, three times. When they were done, the sacrifice was drenched with water and the, and the uh, moat around the sacrifice where the wood was, was filled with water. The wood was underwater, parts of it. And then he, he uttered a very simple prayer. And then we, we read, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the, the trench And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. I don't know about you, but if I was Elijah, and that happened when I was preaching God's word, I don't think I would ever in a million years forget that and be discouraged and depressed when it came to the ministry of God's word because, brothers and sisters, That's the God that I'm serving. And look what he does. And yet it wasn't but a couple hours that he received a a communique from Jezebel, Ahab's wife, who was from Tyre, which was the center of the Baal cult in in Canaan. She brought Baalism to uh, um, Israel. She wrote a letter And we pick it up. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as one of of them by tomorrow about this time. Talking about the prophets. They all were, were killed. And he, Elijah, was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he re- and requested for himself that he might die. And said, it is enough, O Lord, take my life, I'm not better than my father's. This is crazy. This man has just witnessed God do something incredible. Miraculously incredible. I mean, awesome. And then he gets a letter, literally hours later, and he runs like a frightened rabbit for his life. Only to say, God, I wish I was dead. Brothers and sisters, he is but one of many in redemptive in church history. In fact, in the, the, during the Reformation, there was the phrase that the Puritans coined, the preacher's fainting fits. Have you guys heard of the preacher's fainting fits? It was the depression that came upon them after they preached God's word. It was the severe discouragement that came upon them. The preacher's fainting fits was severe depression that the Puritans, and from that point on, Spurgeon, struggled massively with discouragement, massively with depression. I mean, this man is a man who stood in the, in the tabernacle that they just built, this massive place to test the um, acoustics, stood behind the pulpit without you know, microphones and said, John 1, 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and an usher or a, a, a janitor cleaning up the building mess fell on his knees and became a Christian. Man, that's the power of God. And Spurgeon's life was constantly struggling with despair. Brothers and sisters, a couple of weeks ago, 
we looked at Haggai 1, 12 through 15, and it was the second oracle which reflected a spiritual revival on the part of God's people. Man, things couldn't have been better. They, they, were, they were once again up, doing fantastic. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, if in the last couple of weeks since this was preached, perhaps when we, pre- when we looked at this text, God used that in your life to give you a sense of renewed passion for your Lord. You began being in the Word of God daily like you used to be. And you began praying daily and frequently like you used to be. But now, two weeks later, you're, you're, you're re- retracting and you're going back to old habits. And you're finding that that zeal that you had maybe then or, 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 or at other times is waning. It's common. That's normal. That is what happens to us as God's people as we grow on our walks with God. Great uh, moments of spiritual renewal and dedication most often are followed by severe setbacks in our walk and discouragement and depression. That's normal. Well, that's normal. Is there any way that we can... Is there anything we can do at those times? I realize I may be talking to people this morning who are in a place of spiritual decline who are depressed and discouraged in their walk. What do you do when you're facing that lot? This third oracle is for you. This is such an incredible book, pastorally. It's, uh, it, it is about, as I've titled it, it's God's cure for the disappointment, discouragement, despair that typically follows spiritual renewal. Let's look at it. We're going to begin looking at the, the context Notice with me verse 1. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, real quickly, that is a significant date. It's a significant date for two reasons. In the Jewish uh, calendar, that was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a feast, uh, a rite that God's people participated in on a yearly basis where for seven days they left their homes and lived in tents under the the stars, slept out under the stars to identify with the people of God in, in the wilderness. Proclaiming to the world and to themselves, reminding themselves, yes, I've got a nice home and yes, I drive a nice car, but brothers and sisters, this world is not our home. We are aliens and we are strangers. And if there was any time that God's, felt, that God's people felt like aliens and strangers, it was when this oracle was proclaimed. God's people just recently came back to the promised land after 70 years in exile. And there they're living as aliens and strangers attacked and persecuted for their faith. Realizing this world is not our home. So God came to them on the, at, the, at the high point of that festival where they would be gathered around the Temple Mount and he gave this oracle. You can imagine Haggai standing up in the midst of the assembly gathered where the temple used to be because that's where the Feast of Tabernacles culminated. They'd all be there and he stood up and proclaimed this message. Secondly, this date is significant because it places it 26 days after the previous oracle. So they've had 26 days to labor on the Temple Mount. 26 days since the revival. And already they look up and they realize they've done nothing. 
they've been laboring for 26 days and they haven't even cleared the temple mount. Then you go, what is their problem? Brothers and sisters, quickly, my brother, as a senior prank in high school, drove up to the mountains with a dump truck that his friend's dad owned because he was a construction man. And they found this massive boulder, five, six tons, on the side of a mountain that they could back the truck up to, dig out, and roll into the flatbed. And then they drove it and dropped, and jumped it, uh, it, dropped it in front of the school doors. The thing was five tons. They, no one could move that. Five tons. Do you know that the temple foundation stones, I shared this a couple weeks back, were 12 feet by 12 feet by um, 100 feet, and they weighed over, I'm sorry, not 100 feet, 12 by 12 by 40, and they weighed 100 tons. Some of the boulders that were on that temple mount could have been 50 tons. How would you move a 50-ton boulder without a dump truck? and the ability to dig underneath it and fall into it. How would you do that? They had been laboring for 26 days, and the Temple Mount still had boulders sitting on top of it that had to be moved in order to build this uh, temple. So no question did discouragement set. And then you add to that, 42,360 people came, to, came back in the uh, return in 538. How many people were laboring on that Temple Mount? Not all 42,000. We might say, hey, maybe a couple hundred. How many could be uh, laboring at one point trying to clear that uh, rubble? A couple thousand? It's the Feast of Tabernacles. We've got tens of thousands knowing that they're rebuilding the temple. This is great. Coming in and going, what have you all been doing for 26 days? This is it? This is all the work that you've done, brothers and and sisters? You ever uh, feel that way? I have labored and toiled. The servant, Isaiah 49, I have labored in vain. I've toiled in vain. I've spent my strength on nothing in vanity, says him. Elijah, what have I done, God? The uh, uh, Puritans, fainting fits. What have I done? Do you feel that way with your ministry and in your, your parenting, your marriages, your work, your Bible studies, your attempts at serving Christ? Do you ever sit back and go, God, what am I wasting my life for? I think y'all do. That's the preacher's fainting fits. That's depression. That's the discouragement that sets in after spiritual uh, revival. Yeah, Lord. I'm, I'm reading the Bible now, I'm doing all these things, and still I'm sinning, and still I'm falling back to those peevish, petty struggles that I've, I've always had. What a jam, what a joke, what a, what a joke am I? That's exactly where these people were, struggling. So God came and he gave this oracle, verse 2, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltael, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? How do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in a comparison? I love this. Do you know what God says to you when you come to and say, God, I've done nothing? Do you know what God says? God says, in fact, you've done less than nothing. He's a realist. He's not going to candy coat it. He's not going to say, oh, no, 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 no. Look at the great things that you, you all by yourself have done. Look how great of a servant you are. Man, I'll tell you what. I was just talking with the Trinity the other day, and I was just saying, I am so grateful that Brother Bob had that revival and actually is reading the Bible now. I mean, I'm impressed with you. God doesn't say that. He's real. Every one of you here, you sit there and you come to the point in your walk where you go, I am so wretched. 
How could God ever save me? You know what God says? You're worse than you think, and I still love you. That's the gospel. You're worse than you think. He's not going to can. Dakota Boyce wrote these words. In these words, God is acknowledging the situation as they saw it. He's not trying to cover it up. He's not telling them that they have overly idolized those earlier days or that they're putting themselves down uh, too much. He begins by acknowledging the things that things really were bad. I'm a horrible servant of Christ. That's right. You are. I have failed miserably. That's right. You have. I'm a horrible preacher. Tell me something I don't know. Guys, all of that's true. In fact, it's worse than you think. You ever feel like that? I know you do. That's the life we live. Elijah, the servant in Isaiah 49. So let me ask you something. Before we get to the solution, which is the next verse, why does God allow this? And this is something I really want you to, to take to heart, brothers. God's word answers that question. Let me give you a couple passages. Exodus 6, after God's people, after Moses came to deliver God's people, and all he got for it was more difficulty, more setbacks, more discouragement, so much so that now the Pharaoh's saying, you've got to make uh, cl- uh, your bricks without clay or without straw. And now God's people not only hate Moses, but then now they're resenting his God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the calling you've given me to preach your word, only to have people hate me for it and hate you more. What am I doing? Maybe I'm not called. Maybe I, I misread the, the uh, uh, fiery for, um, uh, bush. I don't know, God. This is what God said. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people. I will be your God. And this is it. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. You know what God ordains these setbacks? Because, brothers and sisters, Christianity is not about us. It's about God. Do you understand that? We think because God loves us and saved us, therefore we must be the center of God's universe. And we are not. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What's God's chief end? It's to glorify God. And to enjoy himself uh, forever. Christianity is not about us. It's about God. And therefore everything God's doing. He's doing to bring glory and praise to him. Listen to Matthew 15. The record of Christ healing the lame, crippled the dumb. So that the multitude marveled. As they saw the dumb speaking, the crippled restore, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now you read that passage, you read right over that passage, you don't realize, put yourself into the human element. These people were lame from birth. Some had become blind because of sickness. Some had, uh, had become dumb, they couldn't speak. Um, some couldn't walk. 
imagine the turmoil and the difficulty that, was, that, that these people went through. Why? That the day could come that Jesus could heal them and that the people and them would glorify God. Do you know there's no greater thing in your life that could happen in your life this moment than you glorifying God? Lord, give me cancer if you would be exalted in my life. Is not our prayer, God, use me to your glory? Is that not our prayer? Guess how God does that? With very, 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 multiply that by a lot, few people, he does that through success. Right? Man, I started preaching when I was 18 years, or 17 years old, and by the time I was 21, I was preaching to 2,000 people, says Spurgeon. How many countless millions of ministers started preaching in their teens and early 20s, only to die preaching to little more than 20 or 30 people? Guys, that's the norm. God, and yet, do we gripe at that? Do we shrink back and say, God, why? No, we say, Lord, just use me. We sing it. Content to fill a little space if thou be glorified. God, that's all I want. I'm not worthy to touch your sandals. Just use me to your glory. Christianity is not about us, brothers and sisters. It's about God. Lazarus' sickness and eventual death. Why? This man died. Over a course of seven days, more other than that, a long, grueling struggle while he died and his life slowly eked out of his body. Why? But when Jesus heard it, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. You've got to learn something very important here, brothers and sisters. Christianity is not about you or me. It's all about God. Jack Miller wrote, God's holiness is not only about his righteousness, but also about his power. Do you understand that? The job we have to do, we cannot do in our own power. We work hard, but we must realize that we also are spectators watching from the sidelines to see what God is doing. Our work will never be about ourselves as conquerors. It will only be about God, the conqueror. That is how it was for Moses, and that is how it is for us. Brothers and sisters, can you be content to fill a little space of God be glorified? Now, why is this point important? It's important because you know the main cause of spiritual discouragement in your walk? It's when you look at your fruit when you look at your life, when you look at your self, and you aren't in your pride what you wish you were. These people were discouraged because they're looking at what they've done. 26 days, and this is all that we've done. Man, we're going to be here for years. Four years to be exact. Solomon's temple with all the resources and supplies he had took 12 years to build. They're rebuilding that temple, and they're going to do it in four years. It's not going to look anything like Solomon's. But they're going to be at it for four long years. And God's telling them, Christian, you have got to get your focus off of your fruit. Christianity is not about you. It's not about what you've done for Christ. It's what Christ does through you. It's what Christ is to you. That's what Christianity is to the praise and the glory of God's grace, Ephesians 1. That's why David in, in Matthew or in, in Psalm 5 says, I will order my, or I'm sorry, in the morning, O Lord, 
I will um, offer my prayer out of the I mean, the morning, I will order my prayer to thee and eagerly watch. We are indeed, we're servants, but we're also the audience. We're watching God work through his word, work through our labors to his glory. It's not about us. Man, I wanted this to happen so that four people would be saved. God didn't save them. Praise be to God, it's up to God, not us. Man, I've got four kids. One seems to be that black sheep. What am I doing? I'm a horrible parent. Guys, it's not about you. It's about God's work in that person's life. Trust God. Stop looking at the things that you and I use to gauge success or failure and raise your eyes, Colossians 3.1. Lift your eyes, set them on the things above, and stop focusing on the things of this earth. How you fail. How, you, how, how you're unfaithful. How you and how you and how you and how you. Stop thinking about you. That's the glory of heaven. You know that? And you know the, 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 defin, the definition of humility? Okay? It's not thinking about yourself at all. Okay? In the garden, Adam and Eve did not have any sense of self. It's only when they fell, when the fall, that we read. And they hid themselves and covered themselves because they, they knew they were naked and they were ashamed. Weird. They were naked before, but they didn't know it. Why? They weren't focusing on themselves. Do you realize in heaven you won't be thinking about you? You'll be thinking about God and the body of Jesus Christ, and there will be no you. That doesn't mean you are not important. Clearly you are. Jesus died for you. But the focus of Christianity is not you. It's God. And God's work and his glory in the lives of his people. Wow. So brothers and sisters, take our focus off. Now that being said, recognize spiritual renewal continues and grows and, uh, um, 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 and uh, blossoms as our focus is not, there on our, is not there for on our labor, but on what? God, and that's the next point. Notice the comfort. So these guys are saying, I have done nothing. I've told in vain, and I spent my strength on nothing in vain in Isaiah 49, 5, or 4. Man, Lord, what a failure am I. And Haggai stands up in that crowd, and he says, but you now take courage. The word for take courage, let me quick, I'll give you a quick definition. It's a festal word. It's a word used after a festival when you've seen what God has done and you leave that festival realizing once again the grace and the mercies of God, the greatness of your Lord, and you bring that to the workplace. You bring that home. What's in your heart? Courage. It's this boldness and this praise. It's this It's this. It's this reverent boldness because God is awesome and this is holy ground because God is here. He's going to do uh, the work. Take courage, Zerubbabel. Take courage, Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. And all you people of land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. Why? Notice the three reasons he gives. For I am with you. In other words, get this. Spiritual revival is ministered to or maintained as we take our focus off of ourselves and keep them transfixed upon the character, the person, and work of God. You know why depression and spiritual depression sets in? Because the focus leaves Christ, stares at those waves, and we start sinking again, just like Peter. 
I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Three things does Haggai tell us here about God. First, he's with us. This is what your focus is. This is what keeps you from spiritual discouragement. This is what keeps you going, brothers and sisters. One, lift your eyes, no matter what you see in your life, no matter what setbacks you see, lift your eyes and realize this, God is with you. Now, what does that mean? That means more than just that you're in his presence, omnipresence, right? God is with us. He's by us. He's beside us. To say God is with us, Emmanuel, is to say God is for us. Now, let me explain what that means. That, mean God, that, that means God endorses you. And God says, that's my servant. Remember Job? I love how Job starts. Satan comes. Have you seen my servant? Satan's against him. Pretty soon, warriors are going to be against him. The whole world's going to be against him, including his wife. But Job's joy is to know God is for him. God endorses him. God says, I approve of you. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You are mine. Boy, these people needed to hear this. While they were building this temple, the Samaritans were persecuting them. Ezra chapter 3 or chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. And while they were rebuilding this uh, building, Cyrus, who commissioned the building of the building in 538, it's now 520. Cyrus is dead. Darius has been reigning now for four years. And the, and the local rabble come and say, um, <clears throat> who are the leaders here? Give me your names. Well, it's, it's Joseph, and it's uh, Judah, and it's this and this. Great. Why do you want them? Because I'm writing a letter to Darius, and I'm mentioning you by name. And I'm saying that you are rebelling against the Persians for building this temple. They're, you are rebuilding a symbol of your national autonomy. You're dead men. You're dead men. That's what, that's what happened. These guys can imagine how, how frightened they would be and how they would be tempted to, to shrink back. But you know what God says? Hey, get it. Cyrus may be against you. He wasn't. Dur he was dead. Dur uh, Darius may be against you. He wasn't. The letter they write, Darius would discover from the annals of the Persians that Cyrus said do it, and he's, he's going to actually send them help and tell the people who wrote to him, you have to fund. You have to put your money where your mouth is. You're going to help pay for this temple. Incredible. But at the point, they don't know that. Everyone's against us, God. All I'm trying to do is serve you. And every time I serve you, I get smacked in the face. Man, I do this, whap. Do that, my, you know, um, I'm on gratitude with my kids. Lack of, of care with coworkers. Criticisms. All I'm trying to do is serve you, God. And this is the thanks I get. God says, Christian, do you understand the world may turn their back upon you, but as long as God is with you and therefore for you, you are the majority. That's what we told Joshua. The world may disagree with you, Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Go. In fact, brothers and sisters, that is the, this statement. I am with you. I am for you. I am, I am endorsing you. You are my servant who I love. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That call is what God has given throughout redemptive history 
to his people during these, these kind of circumstances. Joshua 1.9. Have I not come in? He just became the leader. Moses just died. Joshua, you saw the horribleness Moses went through with this with his rabble, with these people. You're now the commander. And Joshua's like, oh my. God says, have I not a command you be strong and courageous? Do not tremble or be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you. I'm for you. I'm endorsing you. You're my leader. You may, you may serve the next 50 years in ignominy and no one even know your name. But when you die, it will be the well done, that good and faithful servant because that's the gospel promise. Christian in Christ, you've got God for you, with you, endorsing you. We read about it in Romans 8. Paul told all of us as we face a hostile, hateful world, if God is for us, who is against us? Brothers and sisters, why would you be let, let anybody in this world let you down when you know the King of kings and Lord of lords endorses you? This is my servant with whom I'm well pleased. Mark 6, 50. This is incredible. There is a striking parallel between Haggai's words here and um, the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples on the water. When he's walking on, on the water. Get this. If we didn't know any better, he was quoting from Haggai. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Incredible. I endorse you. You're mine. Christian, the first thing to stave off spiritual discouragement, or if you're in discouragement, is to take your eyes off yourself and place them on God. Christianity is about God. And you know what that God says about you? That God, who's the center of everything, says, you are mine. You are the apple of my eye. Incredible. I endorse you. Secondly, verse 5, notice with me. Haggai assured the people that God's spirit is abiding in your midst. When I hear that, the first thing you think of, I think of is Elisha with his servant, with the Arameans attacking him. And his servant's like, yeah, you know, we're surrounded by the Arameans. They're going to kill us tomorrow. They finally caught up to us, and they're going to kill us. You know the story because everything that happened in the the Aramean camp, the the king and his private council, and then all of a sudden the Jews know about it. How in the world are there's there's a, a traitor amongst my cabinet? And the guy said, no, it's Elisha. What you say in secret, God tells him, and he tells the people of God. Well, then we're going to kill him. Our objective right now, the entire force and power and strength of the, of the Aramean kingdom is now set to kill Elisha and that servant of his. So they're now finally held up in this city, surrounded, and his servant's like, we're going to die. And it's not going to be a pleasant death. It's going to be horrible. What are we going to do? And what do you remember? Elisha prayed and said, oh, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. The Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. How is it different that God is for you and God is in your midst? What's the, 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 the difference? God is for you or God is with you. That is an endorsement statement. God is in your midst speaks about ability. If God were in your midst, he is there to protect you, to strengthen you, uphold you, enable you, and work through you to, co- to accomplish his end. God for you, God with us, 
uh, Emmanuel is the endorsement of God that you are mine. God in your midst is God working in your midst according to his power, according to his, his will. Let me give you some examples of that. Ephesians 1.3, Paul was getting at this when he wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You understand what that text says? You don't have any want. I don't have any food. I don't have enough money. Well, of course, that's, that's earthly want. But spiritually, before God, you have no, no want. God's, the, the, the spiritual resources of heaven are at your disposal as a Christian. Think about that. Imagine Bill Gates coming to you and saying, Christian, or Bob, he wouldn't call you Christian, Bob, this is my bank account ledger. What do you think? Wow, you're a billionaire. <laughs> I forgot my son, David, knows this. I don't know why he knows this. He loves knowing this. But what, what is a penny to Bill Gates? You and I are walking along, and we see a penny on the ground. And we go, ah, my back's sore. I'm not going to. I'll just walk right past it. What is a penny to Bill Gates? Proportionately, it's something like $12,000. I forget what it is. It's a massive amount of money. If I saw $12,000 in a bag sitting on the floor, if I had a bad back, I'd say, okay, I'm going to fall to the ground. I'm going to roll with my neck and I'll t- with my chin, and I'm going to grab that bag, you know? And then I'll say, please, help me. I can't get up, you know, or something. But, a, but that's a penny to Bill Gates. Imagine him coming with his bank book and says, hey, hey, Bob, I'm giving you full rights to it. Whatever you want, it's yours. That's what God does in Christianity. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Boyce wrote of this, God does not say, as we might say to someone in order to buck him up, go on, I know you can do it. Just be strong, give it your best. That advice might be valuable at a football rally or when a person is waiting to participate in a talent contest, but it's not valuable in spiritual things simply because we are not equal to our spiritual tasks. It's not about you. God's going to be honest. You're not equal to a Christian. God wants you to raise those kids to love and know Jesus Christ. You can't do it. God wants you to, to, to make a good living and pay all those bills in and of yourself. You can't do it. You can't. It's only by the grace of God. It's always by the grace of God. I love this. Like Moses, we're weak. Like Joshua, we face tasks that are impossible by, by normal means. Like Solomon, we are not the heroes of our forefathers were. But we can be strong and we can be equal to the task because God is with us in his strength. He can, um, we can be uh, courageous. He's talking about in the midst. Think about that, Christian. And then the next verse, Ephesians 3, 20, 21. Guys, if you haven't memorized this, it's a memory verse, Okay. Um, he says, now the hymn was able to keep you from stumbling. And uh, um, I'm sorry, I messed up that one. <laughs> it's a memory verse, so much for a good example. Now to him who is able to, see, to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory of the church and in Christ Jesus forever. To him who is able to do abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that works within us. What's the difference between according to and out of? If Bill Gates gave you out of his wealth, how much would he give you? A penny. If Bill Gates gave you according to his wealth, how much would he give you? Everything he has. 
You have been, God um, is able to do exceeding above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Now, we're not talking about making money. We're not talking about, you know, health, wealth, success, and the whole bit, the health and wealth of gospel. We're talking about spiritual enabling. You've got it, Christian. The power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead rose you from the dead and worked within you this very moment. But it's not you, it's him. It's the Holy Spirit. So secondly, know three things when you're in discouragement. One, God endorses you. No way. Not after all that sin. He does. Even after all that sin. In fact, you're worse. There are billions of sin that you don't even know is a sin. And he has forgiven you those. He's forgiven you that. He endorses you. Secondly, brothers and sisters, he not only endorses you, but, he's, but he is in your midst, working by and with you through his word, by and with his word through you. Wow. And then lastly, verse 6, would you notice? Haggai assures the people that God is all-powerful such that no one can stand in his way. Haggai 2, 5b, he says, do not fear. And then 6 through 9, he, said, he stresses, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts, Lord. That is a military expression in the ancient world of a, of a general who had countless soldiers. And that is a king of hosts. In the context of God, it's the king of, he's the Lord of the host of, an, of angels. So listen to it. It's 1 Samuel 4. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who sits above the cherubim. The Lord of hosts in Scripture is frequently re- reunited with the angels. Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O, o ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The fact that God is the Lord over the host of angels makes him this, this battle warrior that no human army could stand against. No spiritual army, as in Satan, can stand against. And because of that, First Chronicles 11, David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. This statement that Haggai is, is choosing to use, God's choosing to use, is to remind God's people, and they know the story, they know the history of this word, that the Lord of hosts still abides with you. So you're just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In that fiery furnace, the Lord of hosts is there protecting you, that fourth man. You're no different from Elisha, who sat there with his servant buckling with his knees, and God saying, open his eyes, and you'll see, or I'm sorry, Elisha saying, open his eyes, Lord, and he sees that God's host is with him. Brothers and sisters, the third thing we learn about is God is is an almighty God who cannot be thwarted, and he is working by and with you to to please him, to his end. What is that end? His glory. But his glory has to mean success for me. No, it doesn't. His glory is success. It is. But you and I are but one of billions of Christians who are working together Think of the body. You know, I, 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 as I told you before, I'm the skin tag of Christianity, right? I'm that little skin tag. Um, not seen, not even cared about. Um, that's, that's most of us. One preacher called it, we, the church is filled with the army of the anonymous. 
Very few people stand out. Very few Christians of our generation. How many in this room in our generation, if God tarries in 2,000 years, will be remembered? I dare say none of you. Forgive me if I've offended you. It will not be me. I mean, we're part of the army of the anonymous, but together, the little tiny bricks in the building, we, we, we create a temple. And that leads us to the last point, 6b through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts once more in a little while, language denotes urgency. I'm doing this, man. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, and also the dry land. I'll shake the nations, and they will come with the wealth of the nations. I'll fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And this place shall, I shall give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. We don't have time in this survey to go through it. I'm not going to make this a part two. I'll let you study that on your own this week. It's great study. It's fantastic words. But let me ask you a couple uh, questions generically and be, uh, stepping back. Number one, when after 520 did God, speaking of the second te- uh, temple, they're working on the second temple, okay, that would be built, finished in 516, remodeled by, by Herod, and that would be the temple that Christ himself would be walking in someday. This is the second temple. When, after 520 B.C., did God shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and when did he shake the nations as it relates to that temple? Secondly, when did the nations come with their wealth and willingly place it in the second temple? I don't mean when did the nations, through conquest, yield up their money with which Herod used, commentators are saying this, used to build, so it was built by the wealth of the nations. That's not what this text says. This text says the nations are going to bring their wealth, he's going to shake them, he's going to, they're going to bring their wealth into that temple. When did God fill the second temple with Shekinah glory? When did God's glory descend on the second temple like he did the first and inhabit that and made it glorious? He didn't. When did the glory of the second temple far exceed the former glory of the first temple when God's awesome presence did dwell there? It didn't. The second temple, as glorious as it might have looked with gold and and wealth, could not hold, it was was pale in comparison when God's Shekinah glory radiated out of the first temple. So when, brothers and sisters, is, is um, Haggai, is God talking about here? Is this the temple they're working on? The answer by all my commentaries is absolutely not. To a degree, yes, the nations funded the, it because of Herod, but that doesn't answer the, this text. So then what is God talking about? What temple is God talking about? And what all of my, every one of my commentaries are saying and I agree uh, with them, it makes sense, is that this is but a foreshadowing of God's redemptive plan, which was bound up in Christ, his first coming and his second coming. I got five different statements there. You can read them. Christ, look at those passages in his body, the church, are referred to by God as his temple. Our text is talking about a future temple. When Christ established that temple, the temple of his body, the church, the heavens and the earth most, most certainly shook. Remember Christ at the cross, the earthquake, the ripping of the temple curtain. That's the heavens and the earth shaking. Our text speaks of, uh, um, where is it? Our text speaks of God once more shaking the heavens and the earth. John prophesied of a time when the nations bring their wealth into the temple, which is ultimately heaven. Revelation 21, you can look at it. Our text speaks of the wealth of the nations being brought into the temple. Isaiah also said the same thing. So did Ezekiel, by the way. And they're all talking, Isaiah and Ezekiel are talking about the heavens, the temple and the new heavens and the new earth, which is the bride. 
There would come a time when God's glory would re-enter the world in a temple, the temple of Christ. And though mankind rejected this glory, nevertheless, on the last day, that glory once again will come back to the world in the clouds of the sky with the power and great glory. Our text speaks of a louder glory of the house being greater than the former glory. What, what, what could surpass the Shekinah glory of God in the first temple? Well, the glory of the Son, of the only begotten of the Son, full of grace and truth. Romans 5.1 speaks of the peace of God that only comes in Christ. Our text speaks of a future temple where God shall give peace. Brothers and sisters, uh, there's no question. We're talking here about not this physical temple that these people were working on, but the temple that God would erect in Christ, in his body. And I don't have time. My plan was to go. It's not part of my notes. Matthew 16, 16 through 18. Maybe I'll reference that real briefly when Jesus Christ said, hey, who do the people say I am? And they said, oh, some say this, some say that. And they looked at them and said, who do you say I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Christ's response to that was, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My father did, who's in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, what rock? Catholic Church says the Pope. Papacy is not in this verse. What rock? Upon the rock of the confession of Jesus Christ, I'll build my church. Brother, that is what God's people back in Haggai's day were doing. They were responding to God's call in faith, love, and dependence upon God. Our call in faith, love, and dependence upon Christ. That is how Christ's church is built. So Haggai here, God is speaking to Haggai and describing a scene that these people were already participating in. Their example of love, faith, and devotion served as the foundation. It would, serve, it would begin to serve as the foundation of the church Ephesians 3, that would be built and established when Jesus Christ came back in his first advent and come into glory when he comes back in his second. Brothers and sisters, the point of this I want you to see is this. The work you think you're working on this day, let me ask you this. What is the work God is working on right now? What is it? Is it your 501K? Is it, you know, I want more kids. Is it... Another Bible study? I mean, what is God working on in your life right now? Well, as a little tiny uh, stone temple, uh, uh, brick in the temple, he's working on building a temple. Which means all of your labor combined with everyone else's labor, we don't see how it all fits together, but we don't need to see it, is, is combined and joined to, to advance God's kingdom Purpose, and that kingdom purpose is the building of the temple, the bride. Now, how does my, my feeble work fit into that? I don't know. But I don't need to know. And when I and God's providence have setbacks, if I focus on those setbacks, I'm spiritually depressed. I go through a preacher's fainting fit. But when I go, wait a second, by faith, God is building his bride. Revelation 21 and 22, the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem, is the church and the city. It's both. What is it? It's both. That's his temple. Hebrews describes the temple. 8.5, every temple built on this earth is patterned after the temple that God's building. Erected in glory in which Christ came 
to create. Brothers and sisters, do you understand the work that you and I are privileged to participate in? It's a work that you and I cannot tangibly measure. Now, does that mean you don't measure anything? Of course you do. You know, I don't want to be beating, swinging at air. There's a place for it. So I'm not saying completely be ignorant. But brothers and sisters, the big picture, lift your eyes and realize the kingdom of God is not about you. The encouragement comes in your life when you think it is. Lift up your eyes and may you understand your purpose in this life is to pursue and to behold the glory of God in the setbacks. That's what your focus needs to be. Gaze upon Christ in the setbacks. And then live with the confidence that in and through it all, God is weaving this glorious tapestry, which from our perspective is a mess, but from God's perspective is the glory and the honor of his name. We're out of time. Let me go and lead us in prayer. God, I pray that you'd give your people, give us the grace, O Lord, to receive this incredible oracle as your people received it that day with the intent with which you gave it, that, Lord, it would take our focus off the little meager work that we have done over the last 50 years or 60 years or 70 years of our lives and to just be thrilled to be a part of your kingdom, to be thrilled, to be overtaken not by the work that we do. As Christ told his disciples who came back after the 70 went back and out, glorying in the the great work they did. And Christ saying, do not rejoice in the work that you've done, but rejoice that your name is recorded in heaven. God, I pray that that would be our joy, your endorsement. Our comfort would be your presence. And our focus would be, therefore, the building up, the establishing of your kingdom work. And Lord, if we don't ever see any fruit May that be enough for us just to know that our names are recorded in heaven. Thank you, Lord, for this incredible passage. Bless us as we have studied it this day to encourage us and strengthen us as we seek to serve you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's go to the table.